I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, a planner in Kansas City, and joining me today is my friend Andrew Ganahl, who's the managing partner of And Real Estate, and he is an, an urban infill developer in Kansas City who has a previous life working for the U.S. Treasury Department. (laughs) So welcome to the show, Andrew. Hi, Abby. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you back. I wanted to bring you on this week to talk about an article that has to do with residential development, which is something that you are quite familiar with here in Kansas City and other cities as well. So this article was published in The Hustle by Alex Mayasi, and the title is The Developers Who See Dollar Signs in Abandoned Downtowns. So downtown office markets have been struggling for years now, uh, which really heightened due to the uncertainty brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic and work-from-home efforts. This was, in a sense, the nail in the coffin for downtown office workplaces in many areas of the country that were already experiencing the stresses of outdated buildings and emerging virtual alternatives. It's been three years now since work-from-home measures became the norm, and many employers have pushed to bring people back into the office. However, office workers have not returned to downtowns at the level that they were at before. So in places like New York and Houston and San Francisco and others, office buildings are still at 40 to 60% vacancy. Because daytime population has diminished during this time, the number of retail establishments have also reduced. So some developers are seeing this as a major opportunity to solve another problem, which is housing scarcity. Vacant office buildings are potentially discount real estate and otherwise high-cost downtowns that have a high demand for housing. Converting office buildings into residential units may be an opportunity to make a dent in the housing crisis. So experts that it were interviewed for this article, basically spell out three key ingredients that are needed to successfully buy and convert an office building for residential use. The first is that the building shouldn't have any tenants when it's being purchased, which seems like an obvious one. The second is that the price needs to be right. So conversion from office to residential entails basically stripping the building back to its skeleton and rebuilding from there. So the price would need to be pretty modest. And then finally, less red tape. So making sure that you can actually do residential in in office buildings. And if you're in a downtown that has pretty flexible use regulations, that shouldn't be a problem. So Andrew, as our resident developer here on Upzoned, <laughs> or at least one of them, we have several joining us. But you know, you you're pretty familiar with residential development, and I would say you know you know you're not doing like skyscrapers or anything like that, but you are working in urban settings, mostly new construction, residential. Is this something that you have looked at or considered as a developer during this time? 
definitely considered it. As you know, I also live in Kansas City now, but in previous lives, I lived and worked in both downtown Washington, D.C. and downtown San Francisco. So I do remember very well those downtown areas and how office-dominated they were, uh, especially compared to a city like Kansas City, which I think has actually been pretty ahead of the curve in terms of trying to shift from a 100% downtown office development or a downtown office market to a broader mix of residential. And I think that has benefited Kansas City and similar cities to some extent during this work from home period. But as the article actually does a pretty good job, there's still just a ton of challenges in terms of converting some of these older office buildings into residential, uh, especially based on when a particular city kind of had their office growth spurt, right? So if you have a, a plethora of pre-World War II buildings, it actually might be in pretty good shape. All those buildings are a little bit easier to adapt just because of the way they're shaped and the way their windows work than, let's say, your 70s and 80s office buildings. So Kansas City, to some extent, has a bit of both, but the, I think, really high-quality pre-World War II buildings have kind of largely been picked over at this point in time. So you're starting to see them getting into that harder-to-convert, very different kind of floor plan, very different kind of facade, 70s, 80s, even 90s office building. Yeah, I don't know if for Kansas City, this was just a happy accident or maybe our office market failed a long time ago before other cities have experienced what occurred over COVID. I'm not quite sure, but it, it does occur to me that whether it's a happy accident or very intentional, that the residential density of our downtown has been incredibly beneficial. And I'm hoping, I mean, I, I know that this article is showing information about Kansas City's office market. It shows statistics for, for many larger cities across the country. And it shows that our downtown has only recovered 47% compared to pre-pandemic levels. Um, it, the article's not totally clear on what exactly that percentage means. So I'll just put that in as a caveat. But I, I do kind of wonder what that actually means for downtowns because in Kansas City, we already have this really robust residential density and all of those pre-World War One office, former office buildings that had been converted over the last 20 to 30 plus years. So I'm wondering if this is going to be a bigger problem in other cities that have really led with office and actually maybe kept a really strong office market over many, many years until now. I think that's that's right. I mean, Kansas City's office market really cratered a long time ago. So they had almost nowhere to go but up and to turn towards residential as their future path for growth in the area. As you know, Kansas City lost a lot of jobs to the surrounding suburban markets, uh, especially on the Kansas side. And I'm sure that's a pretty similar story in lots of areas. But to your point, I think a lot of the cities that you see in this article really did have a strong downtown core, some challenges, but kept that strong downtown core longer than most. And that's probably primarily driven by a lot of them have good public transit. 
So you see Boston, Washington, D.C., San Francisco. Those are, I mean, when I worked in D.C. and in San Francisco, I would never drive downtown. I mean, the commute was drive to a train station, walk to a train station, get on a subway, get on a BART, and then go downtown. And the COVID really has just cratered public transit in so many different areas. So I think uh, whether it's people reluctant to get back on public transit or just a perception that it's not as safe as it used to be, though that's one key factor, I think, in keeping some of those office downtown rebounds more muted in some of those cities that were so reliant on public transit. That's really interesting. So, I mean, really, it has to do with mobility and how the cities are set up to accommodate work life and our, how we work generally and how that drives, no pun intended, how, how we work. And I think it speaks to the article and, and part of the article that's quoted talking about how over the last hundred years, we've designed our world around the office, that the office is essentially the geographic center of American life. And what happens when that center becomes as dispersed as individual homes? That could be a good thing if you convert all of those office buildings into residential, then you know everyone's still officing in downtown and that can be really helpful for downtown life. But if it also means that that any office real estate or actual destinations where officing is occurring is happening outside of downtown, especially with major employers, I wonder if we're going to start seeing some pretty strong reverse commuting patterns. And I'm sure that here in Kansas City, we see that because we have, I think we have 30 plus thousand people in our downtown, certainly more than that in our downtown area. But most of our really major office parks and employers are located outside of the urban core area. Yeah. I mean, that was a really important part of the article, just talking about how much where people worked drove so many different phenomenon over the last 75 years from just how our public transit works to having how the buildings look to where the roads go. I mean, so many cities tore up huge parts of their downtown areas to put in highways to facilitate that commuting pattern that, as you mentioned, has really been, I mean, there's been a trend towards the kind of community patterns you talked about, but with so many things, COVID seems to have accelerated those trends. And so people have been talking about converting office buildings to residential for a long time, just as with many things, people are saying, okay, maybe some of that activity that would have happened over the next 10 years is going to happen in the next two or three years instead. But there's definitely still, as the article goes into, just a ton of challenges in terms of making some of these buildings work for residential. I've done a little bit of both. Most of my development work has been new construction, so everything is purpose-built to be residential first, uh, maybe with some mixed-use ground floor commercial spaces. But when you look at the facades of buildings, where the elevators are, where the, what the windows look like, just the geometry, you know, how square some of these office buildings are, it's very different between office use and residential. So it can be quite costly and you have to make a lot of sacrifices when you look at converting something from an office use to residential. Can you talk a little bit about that, about some of the details that you're at least aware of that the article maybe weren't able to jump into quite as deeply? 
Sure. Well, think about plumbing, right? So in an yeah. office floor plan, you've got probably a central bathroom and that's where all the plumbing pipes work. And so you've got very few penetrations between the floors for things like plumbing because it's all centralized and most likely located somewhere in the middle of the building. Well, with apartments, those get dispersed out to every single unit on the floor. So you are punching holes in your floor and running pipes all over the place and then just extend that to mechanical systems. So, you know, you don't have a uh, an HVAC duct system serving a big open area. Instead, you're serving individual units. Uh, I mean, apartments are much more cut up than office buildings, all the demising walls and so forth. One of the, I think, more interesting Twitter debates of last month was the idea of these shared light bedrooms. You might have seen some of that discussion. It was strange to me as someone who's who's actually built new construction buildings with bedrooms that are inset from the exterior and therefore borrow uh, the majority or all of their light from the living room. Uh, it's been a very successful floor plan for me. I can count the number of people complaining about it or not liking about it on like one hand. And yet, you know, there are people who were very vociferous that it was some kind of danger to human health to have a bedroom that doesn't have its own dedicated window to the outside. But you'll see a lot of the, the the conversions of these office buildings just because of how square and how deep some of these floor plates are, that it just makes a ton of sense to use that very valuable exterior real estate for your windows, for your kitchen and living room areas where people tend to spend most of their time. Uh, otherwise, tremendous amount of wasted space in the interior of the building. So Nerico got into that a little bit, but just you know how you configure it for kitchens and living areas and bedrooms is a big determinant whether or not any given building is a good candidate for conversion. Yes, that's very interesting. I, I'm just picturing so many different types of office buildings. I feel like office offices as a typology are not super consistent. Um, I'm sure it's very dependent on the era, but you mentioned the pre-1950s office buildings compared with 1960s, 70s, 80s office buildings, very different type of building, different floor plans, different ways of officing. I mean, it really reflected that. So I, some of these buildings will lend better to, to, to providing residential units than others, most definitely. And it, it sounds like probably the best candidates are those pre-1950s, maybe earlier buildings, but there still may be challenges with that. And I'm sure I'm sure the windows are are a challenge in really any building. Right. I mean, in terms of just getting those windows open. So off in New York, replacing a lot of glass. But I, you know, I think a lot of the charm of some of the really well done historic conversions of these older office buildings has to do with just the aesthetic, right? They kind of have these grand lobbies that are on the ground floor that are nice amenity to the tenants that just are there in the more utilitarian, more modern style later buildings. Uh, you know, the other one uh, I didn't mention is like floor heights, right? So you have a lot of or floor heights in newer-ish, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s vintage office buildings compared to maybe uh, earlier generations. So sometimes you can get 
more livability just by having higher ceilings, right? That brings more light in, it feels more open, it's more just enjoyable and kind of those subtle things you find. So, I, I mean, it, it really is a, a question of, well, how many of the good candidates for conversion are still out there versus how many have kind of been already done? So, you know, is this a trend that's kind of reaching its its final final phase or are there ways in which some of these buildings that previously maybe didn't look like good candidates could be made into better candidates? And how can cities incentivize that? Yes. And it's a good question because from the perspective of somebody in a city where this is very much the norm, it's hard to it's hard to tell if this is something that is going to be a trend that continues or if those types of buildings are just going to continue to have challenges in most cities or it may be highly dependent on the market. I know this article focused very much on uh, cities, major cities, front row cities like New York and Houston, San Francisco, but mid-sized cities I'm sure have tons of buildings like this and probably similar dynamics happening in their office markets, maybe not quite as intense depending on how much people are relying on transit or what the commute styles are generally within those metros. But I could see this being something that increases in mid-sized cities. And if I had to guess, I'd say those mid-sized cities are probably farther along on this trend than even some of these more global cities because of the point of what you said earlier, which is uh, the Washington DCs and New York and San Francisco's, those office markets did continue to thrive just because of the strength of their job markets for much longer than a lot of the more mid-sized cities that saw this exodus of, of jobs to the suburbs and to suburban office parks um, and have probably been thinking about this, at least having on their radar screen that hey, we need to really get some people living down here if we want to bring back some of that vitality. Uh, I'm seeing that in Kansas City. So I'm curious if you have any perspective about vitality and the future of downtowns and whether you have concerns about, I guess, how the office market impacts the tremendous progress that many downtowns have made over the last 20 years. The article talks about this, I think they use the word doom loop, <laughs> that might occur really due to second and third order effects of losing office, primarily in larger cities, but certainly relevant to all cities. It talks about how the loss of the office market means a loss of tax revenue and cuts in public services and less of a desire for residents or even visitors to be in the downtown. I do wonder broadly, how does the loss of retail that may have followed the off the loss of office workers impact the residential appeal of a downtown? To make downtowns really great neighborhoods and places for people to be, there really does need to be a reason to be there. So if retail is really struggling due to the loss of the office market and residential hasn't quite caught up. I could see there being kind of a doom loop, but I'm sure it's incredibly circumstantial. Yeah, I think it's just a more general process of change, right? Cities are going to look different in 10 years than they are looking now. And that's a big strong town's theme of, I mean, in some ways going back to earlier patterns where there was much more broader weeks of uses in downtowns. They weren't just so dedicated to just office, but People live there, people shop there. 
Uh, I mean, so much of the retail, which is already struggling, did, I think, depend a lot on those office users. But, you know, even in places like Kansas City, you're starting to see some retailers and some restaurants go out of business and then others take their place with just a different focus, maybe more focused, less on the lunch crowd and more on the, the dinner crowd or the feeder going crowd or similar aspects. So I think it will be rocky, especially for finances for certain cities over the next five or 10 years as this kind of sorting process happens. But I, I mean, I think there's a, almost like a broader sorting thing going on where people who like to live in cities are going to be moving to cities, you know, if they're working remotely for a job that's headquartered out in a suburb. There's other people who maybe always wanted to live in the suburbs, but had to live closer to work move further out. So the work from home opportunity, I think, is for people to more kind of choose where they want to live and have it less be dependent upon where they work. And I'm pretty convinced that just for every person who wants to live further out, there's somebody who wants to come in closer because on the evenings, they want to be closer into the action and you know where a lot more other people are too. Well, and I think building for residential in downtown and really leading with residential will pay off in the long run because I don't think it's a one-for-one in terms of uh, spending capacity. I, I think that people spend more money in the place that they live rather than the place that they're working. People don't go and spend money at lunch every single day. At least that's been my uh, perspective. <laughs> um, so I actually think that for every one resident you have in the downtown, it's probably worth maybe two or three or maybe more office commuters that you had before. So from a tax revenue and retail spending capacity perspective, I could imagine it being just more beneficial to to the overall market to have people living in the downtown. And yeah, maybe it will become more of a nighttime crowd rather than a daytime crowd. I, I definitely think that's the case here in our city. It's definitely more of a happy hour dinner environment. And a lot of places are closed during the day and don't serve lunch anymore. Yeah, there's been a lot of focus on downtowns. Downtowns, of course, very important, but I mean, you go out to any of the very close-in residential neighborhoods around downtown, and they're just popping. Totally, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it might not be, quote, downtown, but we're a mile from downtown, and our restaurants are, are just packed. And that's because people, like to your point, are spending more time around where they live and list less time away from home. So, you know, the spending is still pretty strong. It's just where it's been distributed. And so I think over time, as downtowns kind of increase a residential base, they'll continue to attract some of that, that spending back there. It's just going to be, you know, different timing. It's not going to be a lunch crowd. It's going to be the dinner crowd. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly a disruption and real estate is going to be impacted and shift and change. And hopefully, you know, we can be smart about it and whatever way we can impact our cities. But I think that a lot of it will be circumstantial and it will just depend on the dynamics of the place before COVID and also how things are addressed and how the, I guess the market ends up operating as, as things shake out. Cities you know, tend to be pretty resilient, right? And so I think yeah. there's one more push towards that kind of resiliency where you've got a broader base of support, just not 
depending upon those office workers coming in every day on the subway. And so some cities will get there sooner than others, and others might take more bumps along the way. But if you had to ask, am I optimistic about San Francisco and DC and other cities like that? I mean, I'm very optimistic. I think they'll just look different in five, 10 years and they look, they look mad. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, to know is how much of a role of that residential influx is taken up by old office buildings. And I think that's back to, it's going to really depend upon what that office building stock looks like. If you're a city that kind of had a, a heyday in the 1910s, 1920s, like a Cincinnati or a, I don't even say Louis for that matter, I think you might actually have some of those great, great old buildings that are um, really good candidates for conversion. But if you boomed in 1960, 1970, it's probably going to be fewer of those golden ticket buildings just in your portfolio that are good candidates for the kind of conversions that we're talking about. Yeah. So I guess we'll see how it all shakes out. And I think we can end it there. I really appreciate you joining me for this discussion. Before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show that we can share anything that we've been up to these days, anything we've been reading, watching, listening to, just really anything that, that we've been up to. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Andrew. What do you have for the down zone today? Well, as you know, I kind of like to read pretty widely, but the book I finally am trying to get through is The Power Broker by Robert Carroll, talking about Robert Moses. And, you know, just amazed at how many parallels there are to today's environment, to the kinds of environments that he was facing in New York City in the 1920s and 1930s. There's a lot of good discussion recently about just how hard it is to get things done, get things built, the kind of Ezra Klein type, uh, you know, how can we encourage infrastructure or make it easier to build infrastructure if we look towards the future. I mean, Moses was crazy, but a genius at getting things done and just steamrolling opposition. I mean, there's enough negative legacy of the kinds of things that he did in New York City, but it's almost incredible to think of the amount of public infrastructure that him from his unelected position was able to build in New York City in you know the midst of the depression right but in immense roads uh, parks parks everywhere uh, bridges that you know I think that it's really interesting so like how can we kind of take the best of the can do get things done attitude without some of the uh, yeah, we're going to ignore public opinion. We're going to ignore any complainers and just do it anyways type mentality that he uh, definitely exemplified. That's really interesting. I definitely see those dynamics play out in today's world. I mean, uh, I feel like Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs are both, you know, evoked quite often and sometimes for the wrong reasons. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. They're polar opposites in in one sense. You know, they both had the right ideas for their time. And it yeah. really is, I think, a good lesson that was maybe appropriate in the 20s, wasn't appropriate in the 60s, but was appropriate in the 60s, is not appropriate today. So how do we learn the lessons of the past without trying to like so faithfully recreate them that we miss the moment? It kind of swung too far towards that. Everybody needs a voice until everybody is satisfied. We can't do anything. And, you know, I think we're, that's really kind of showing in the housing crisis and, and struggles we're building 
you know, a new 21st century infrastructure. Yeah, most definitely. I I was actually thinking exactly of the housing crisis and how people will invoke Jane Jacobs to, you know, <laughs> to keep things from being built that really would need to be built in our cities. It's really kind of disappointing to see that, but it happens quite often. But it's it's a good one. So what are you up to? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so actually, I have gotten back into a show that I watched a long, long time ago because a new season came out. I don't know if you've heard of this, Andrew, but it's it's called Barry, and it's on HBO. Have you heard of this at all? I've seen a little bit of it. I think Bill Hader is just absolutely hilarious. Um, it's it's hilarious. Yeah. It, it's I it's a dark comedy, so it's kind of a it's it's not the happiest show. <laughs> It's basically about uh, a guy played Bill Hader. It's written by him and I think produced and directed, but he plays the main character. And that main character is a hitman who used to be a Marine. And he's kind of disillusioned with his life and goes to LA to do a hit. And he kind of stumbles into an acting class and finds himself really liking the idea of becoming an actor and and has a crush on a girl and basically tries to leave his that life behind and move into this other life where he's going to be an actor in an improv class. So I think it's one of the funniest shows that I've seen in a long time, but I've had people uh, take my recommendation and then watch it and then tell me that like, oh, this is really dark, <laughs> it, but it is dark, I think in a really funny way. And uh, yeah, Bill Hader, I think Bill Hader is a genius. He's actually really into film, I understand, and, and making movies. And he wanted to be a movie creator and kind of fell into comedy. And you can really see that in this show, just the way he films things is really creative and with, with the lighting and how they write the characters so well and so deeply and just the whole pacing of the show is really interesting. So it's just, it's very well done as many shows that are done through HBO are. He's a great interview subject. So if you ever just go into YouTube, oh. look up a hater interview because uh, to your point, he is so thoughtful. For as funny a guy as he is, you know, he's got a very neat intellectual analytical approach to the whole, you know, to film and to TV. So definitely look him up. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look up some interviews with him. I've I've only seen a few a long time ago, but yeah, I understand that, you know, he's not just a just a comedian or or an actor or a guy making a show. I mean, it's he has a pretty interesting background and and it really you can really tell by the way this whole thing is put together. Barry is just so well done. It's one of my favorite shows. So highly recommend, Andrew, since you haven't seen it. You're my go-to TV recommender, so. Thank you. Chuck says that I'm his go-to for movies, which I don't even think I'm really good at movies. Every once in a while, I get really into a TV show. And lately, it's, it's, been, it's been all HBO. They just do a great job. <laughs> I'm finally trying to start watching Succession, get my way up there, but I've already heard some spoilers that are kind of making me <laughs> darn it. Yeah, Succession's really good. I actually have I need to like get 
my mind into it again to watch. I started the new season and then I think I just, it's kind of complicated of a storyline. So I kind of didn't remember what had happened before. And I think I need to go back and remind myself. So, you know, just, just all time, all I need is time to spend. So (laughs) just becoming harder to come by these days. Well, thanks, Andrew. I appreciate you joining me today. We will end it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Abby. Bye.